Welcome back to season four of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $75 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to partners of the firm and leaders in all walks of life to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is a true legend of sports broadcasting. He is a proud product of New Jersey. He attended St. Cecilia High School, where he became the all-time leading scorer in state history, a record he held for almost four decades, and led his team to the state championship his senior year. After a successful college career at LaSalle University, he was drafted by the Knicks, but ultimately decided to pursue coaching. He spent five years at Fairleigh Dickinson before moving to Seton Hall, where he had a great 11-year run. After stepping down, he embarked on one of the all-time broadcasting careers, becoming quite literally synonymous with college basketball for decades. Starting in the 2014-15 season, you've been able to hear this gentleman alongside Jim Nance and Grant Hill providing color commentary for what I think is the best sporting event of the year, college basketball's March Madness. He is a father of four, a grandfather of five, and his wife, Joan, is as amazing as he is. And let me just end this intro then with the simple statement that it is the rare sportscaster who makes the game better. I literally will watch games I don't actually care about because I so love to hear this gentleman work. So without any further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Bill Raftery, broadcaster extraordinaire. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Well, Colbert, nice to hear you in that intro. Uh, I'm just questioning two things. One, you were made to do this because of my daughter, Christy. I assure you, that's one. And the other, when I when I, got, I was with the Knicks camp and got cut, what's interesting, two sides of it, which are pretty cute, Richie Guerin, who's a Hall of Famer, and Tom Gola, who's a Hall of Famer. Uh, they were coming back from lunch as I was picking up my gear, having been cut. I remember uh, Tommy saying, where are you going? He said, well, I got cut. You know, your heart's broken and everything. And uh, Richie Garwin said, well, Bill, I'm sorry to hear that. But if you need tickets, call Tommy. So Richie to this day denies it. Of course, Tommy has since passed away. But anyhow, what ended up happening, I was a director of recreation in Kearney as well as trying out. And I went back you know, back to work, basically. In fact, I went home and my mother said, what are you doing home? I said, I got cut. Well, my mother said with her Irish accent, well, it's too bad. Get working now. That was uh, the only consoling uh, remark she made. But as recreation director, one of the guys that worked with me was a soccer referee. And he was up at Fairleigh Dickinson in Madison. And the AD, Bob Shields, was the basketball coach, soccer coach, lacrosse coach, you know, all for a lot of money, I could assure you. And Pete Carson was the guy's name. He said, he doesn't want to coach basketball this year. And I mentioned that you were home. And that's how I started coaching. I did that for a couple of years. I got a master's and uh, then left the recreation. But anyhow, uh, thank you for that warm introduction. Well, Bill, well-deserved. And let me put a pin in. We'll come back to that, your your transition to the coaching career. Let me go all the way back. Where are you from originally, Bill? Uh, where'd you grow up? Kearney, New Jersey. You know, the most enjoyable time of, uh, you know, any young person's life for me. We just had, it was a great town with, we had older, it was an era of like, say, 1950 to 65, where basketball had terrific players and everybody had to play soccer or you weren't considered an athlete. It was a very Scotch, Irish oriented town uh, and obviously a mixture of all nationalities, but it was, uh, a time where the older guys taught us how to play, you know, we, we just, 
we never realized we didn't have things. Uh, we just had a ball playing, you know, three different sports for me anyhow. And that's what you did every day. You just got up and went out and uh, went to the playground. The parents never worried about you. I, I was very fortunate to grow up in that town. I mean, people were, you know, so kind to everybody. Uh, everybody's dad got up and went to work every day. Uh, you know, there was no uh, silver spoon, so to speak, in the neighborhood. So, Bill, soccer was big in your neighborhood, as you said, but obviously you had a gift for basketball among several sports. How did basketball start for you? Was that just from the neighborhood? Why was that the one that you'd gravitated to? When my folks first moved to Kearney, there was a school up the street. McKinley School was probably the first time I ever shot a basketball. I would say between kindergarten and first grade. Uh, it was against the wall. You know, if you had a layup, you'd hit the wall, basically. And then on the other street, Tappan Street Playground was where all the better players came. And we had guys coming from Newark, occasionally Jersey City, but mostly Newark would come over. And the competition was like you've heard other people talk about. You started in the morning, and if you won, you stayed on the floor. And if you lost, and we used to go to a tavern called the Mouse Trap Tavern, believe it or not. It was a you know, shambles. You know, the roof was one way, the the pilings were another way, and you could probably bet anything you wanted in that place uh, on a given day. And they would give us birch beer. If you lost, you went, you got birch beer, and then waited your turn to come back in and, and play again. So that's basically where it started. So talk to me about your game, Bill. If I found archival footage of senior <laughs> year Bill at St. Cecilia, what was his game like? Oh, uh, great speed, you know, birdie. <laughs> Elevation beyond, I could barely touch the net. Those days, getting back to Joe Palermo, my high school coach, my freshman year, I was the smallest guy in the starting lineup. My sophomore year, three of the kids up front graduated, and he made me still play guard for the four years. And that was sort of the blessing for me because, you know, as it turned out, in those days, and even now, now there's more combo guards, but in those days, you were a guard which meant you had to handle it, you had to make plays, and obviously, uh, you know, the opportunity to score uh, prevailed as well. But, you know, it's just you sort of knew how to play, and I, and I think part of it was playing against better people. Bill, growing up, who was your favorite player? Did you emulate anybody's game? You know, it's funny. Richie Regan, who later became my athletic director at Seton Hall, uh, was a big-time name, and he palled around with my cousin. So he was sort of the idol for us uh, as young guys because we knew him. I would say in my years at, at uh, LaSalle, the best player for my era was Oscar Robertson. And I certainly couldn't emulate his game, but that was a guy that was a consummate all-around athlete, basically. And, you know, has proven with his triple-double average one year in the NBA. A couple of years, I should say. No, Richie, Richie played two years with the Royals just prior to Oscar being there. And, you know, it was a big name for local kids, you know? I love it. Um, all right, so we, we touched on the Knicks that didn't plan out. Tell me about the transition and deciding that coaching was the right step for you. What, what brought you then to Fairleigh Dickinson? Well, there, there was no uh, ABA. I missed it by two years, maybe three, actually. Probably two, because Larry Brown and Doug Moe and those guys all ended up doing that before they ended up playing the NBA. The transition was you did everything your high school coach taught you and your college coach taught you. That was the first year. And then as you got into the swing of it, uh, whether it was clinics or opponents, 
or coaches that you became friendly with, you know, they sort of widen your horizons, basically. You know, you you, uh, you began to establish like anybody does their way of doing things and their personality. That was the progression, basically. So I, I could imagine looking back how much I cheated those kids the first year because, you you know, you're really just taking it out of a book and trying to. Yeah, you're you're learning forward. on the. You're learning on the job, Bill. Yeah. Right. Well, so tell me about that. I, I'm always interested in leadership. I mean, you're stepping into that role. You're not that much older than those kids. You know, how, how do you command respect in that room? Well, what's interesting, there were kids older than me on the team. A couple of guys had come back from service. Gene Heck comes to mind. You know, you just go in the gym and you know what you know, and uh, you have a confident attitude. You know, Bob, I had replaced Bob Shields who was more of a lacrosse coach and a more of a lacrosse aficionado. So whatever I was bringing to the table was probably just a little bit more sophisticated, not because of me, but because of who I had worked with or coached or been coached by. And the, the interesting thing, my junior year, I had a back operation, which in those days was very, very unusual and scary. After the operation, I sat next to Duty Moore, our head coach. And in a way, that sort of gave me an inkling of, uh, he would talk to me, actually, about things that were going on in the game. And that, I guess, was in the back of my head somewhat. But like all kids, and I think we're, we're always chastising these kids of today who, you know, they, they have this dream that they want to be great basketball players and sometimes uh, knocking them because that's their sole ambition. But we were the same. But we were forced to go to school. Uh, and I say that not in a reluctant way, but I, like it's you, part of the you, deal. You, you didn't want to flunk out, basically. You know, yeah. you wouldn't want to let your family down or cause some embarrassment for a lot of people, including yourself. So after several years there at Fairleigh Dickinson, you move over in 1970 to Seton Hall, where you spent over a decade as the head coach. Tell me how that opportunity came about. Richie Regan again was the uh, acting. Uh, excuse me, he was the assistant AD to Father Horgan. And Richie decided to retire. And he had been the victim of, of, in 61, there was a basketball scandal. And some of the Seton Hall kids were involved amongst many NYU. This is not the CCMY scandal of 51, St. Joe's, North Carolina State. And they really had de-emphasized basketball at Seton Hall in a sense that they were not permitted to play in the garden for that his tenure. They only could play on campus, uh, no in-season tournaments. They really tied their, their hands, basically, to try and get this thing organized. And the sad part, it was just a couple of kids that were victimized by people who took advantage of their lot in life. Uh, most of them either had children or were from an impoverished background. And we're duped, basically. So that ended up where, you know, Richie and I had been friendly for many years. I used to do his camps and things like that. And he recommended me to Father Horgan. And that's basically how the job occurred. And, uh, you know, I was very lucky. I mean, uh, geez, I must have been 27 or 8, I guess, when I started. And again, on the job training, although I was blessed, I, I had two really good assistant coaches, Tom Puglisi and then later Hadi Mahan who did replace me for the one year when I left Seton Hall. But they, Hottie in particular was there 10 of my 11 years and won state championships and a great sounding board uh, for me and gave great insights and, you know, helped in the overall approach or development. So uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, 
know somebody at the top and then, you know, have somebody working with me. So 11 years there, you have a great career. You have a great record. You step down in the early 80s. And tell me about your thought process then, Bill. You know, you have an opportunity, I'm sure, to go coach somewhere else. I'm sure there are opportunities. You make a decision, though, that that broadcasting was the right move. Tell me about how that all played out. Well, going back to LaSalle, the last year at at LaSalle, we were playing in the NIT. And the first game was against St. Louis. And it was on CBS. And the announcer was Bob Wolf, who a lot of your followers would know, just a, not only a great announcer, but a classy guy. And Duty Moore said, I want you to show him around the campus and have lunch with him. And I did. And uh, when he was leaving that Friday to go back up to New York, we were going up later that day to play on Saturday. He said, you know, when you finish playing or coaching or whatever you're doing, you ought to get into my business. Why do you think you said that, Bill? I don't know. You know, just his reaction maybe, or his insight to maybe that I would have the potential. I mean, I really can't speak for him. But years later, I ran a broadcaster on a journalist camp for like seven years. Nordy Holder was my partner. And I had Jerry Eisenberg as the journalist. He taught journalism, basically. Kids had a right. And Bob Wolf, I hired as the head professor for the broadcasting. You know, we laughed about it. And I don't think I ever asked them, but he just felt I would be comfortable doing it. And he knew what he was rate, talking about. Pardon? He knew what he was talking about. I love it. Yeah. At any rate, the Biggie started in 79. And uh, I always joke, it's not entirely true. The facts are off. But I always say, you know, all the first name coaches, you know, Rule, uh, Roly, Louis. In fact, I just spoke to Louis earlier. They unveiled the statue of him at St. John's. So good. <laughs> Yeah, he, he said he was so happy they put it inside. He wanted to freeze his backside off. You know, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't say it that politely either, as you can imagine. Oh, sure. But uh, anyhow, the league started, and Dave Gavitt, the commissioner, was the color analyst. And after two years of doing it, he called me. I would say uh, just about right now, October twenty eighth. We had been in practice two weeks in nineteen eighty one, and he said, "If you, I had said to him one night we were out." You know, someday, never thinking I'm going to leave coaching, like all of us, I thought it was going to be John Wooden. That certainly didn't work out. But I said, you know, Dave, someday I might like to do that, you know. So getting back to the phone call, he said, look, if you want to do this, you've got two days to let me know. Anyhow, I, you know, not that we were loaded with capital uh, working at a Catholic school. The old joke, they took them out of poverty and they had me keep it kind of a deal. But what happened was uh, I just said, yeah, so I'll take it. So I left. We had the four kids. Billy was born that. And I left for nine games, $800, 7200 in 1981. And uh, I just winged it, really. And by the end of November, December, uh, ESPN had given me 25 games at 500 each. NBC gave me four games. And I never remember the amount, but it was over 1000 or 1500 But I got this friend of mine that called me and he said, you want to work at the bank. So I started at First National Bank, not in the First National City, First National in Newark. They gave me 15000 a car, paid for the country club. Bill Faraday was his name. He was an old football player, just a great leader, a football player at Rutgers. And we were in the government banking department. And I think it was probably the best move I ever made in my life because, you know, I met people outside of 
athletic. Most of them played something, obviously, at some level. But, you know, corporate magnets. We ran the governor's tennis outing. The, the chairman or president of all the big companies would get one of their younger guys, and it was for a charity. So we met the, we had the Giants, the Jets, the Meadowlands. We had all the casinos that were going up, uh, the roadway, highway authority, and schools. So we really like salesmen, basically. So that gave me a level to go full-time the next year. You know, Bill Faraday said, you just do the games. And, you know, when you're here, you're here kind of a deal. So I signed with CBS in 82. I signed with the Nets in 82. And then I signed with ESPN in 82. And I ran with all of them. Uh, ESPN, seven years ago, you know, I was very fortunate. Fox had an interest and I left them. And the Nets I did until the early 2000. Uh, so I had about a 23, 24-year run with that. And I left, I, the bank. I left the bank in the middle 90s, but made some of the great friendships that to this day that I enjoy, you know, out of the realm of sports. So tell me about that transition. So you're legendary for your preparation. Like I've read articles about the notes that you take before a game. How do you approach broadcasting and how is that similar and dissimilar to, you know, if you're going to go into coach a game, you know, you've obviously got to do the work on the front end too. Tell me about that process. You know, every morning I would do a game plan or a practice plan when I coach. The interesting part now is the preparation is part of it, but because you know, CBS has the NCAA tournament. I try and keep abreast of teams that I'm not even doing their games. And you never guess entirely right, as you know, because certain teams get in that are shocking. You know, Georgetown would be a good example. You know, not that I didn't cover them, but, you know, not a great year. And then they won the Big East tournament. But, you know, some of the lesser or mid-major conferences uh, are harder to keep up with because you have your, you know, your daily program or your preparation. There's a similarity in that, I don't mind looking at games all day long and taking notes. And as a coach, that's what you have to do. You've got to get your guys, you got to help them get better. I think the same thing prevails that you've got to know as much as you can about those two teams that are playing. And the interesting thing for me, I may know one coach better than the other or been around them more than the other guy. But when I first started, particularly with CBS, I didn't love to do it, but I always went and saw the coach who lost because I knew how bad that is. You know, whether it's an away game or home game, if it's an away game, you know, he's got to get on the bus with all his kids are, you know, their heads are between their legs, kind of a deal. He's got to get himself up, his coaches up and the players up because two days later, they're going to play somebody that's going to be difficult for them as well. Uh, when the game starts, it's all about 10 kids that are playing their hearts out for the respective university. So that's an add-on where you, you have a lot of compassion for the guy who loses because, you know, he did as much work to enter that game as the, the fellow who won. And it may have been just a break or a better talent or a better call, a key call at the end of the game that changes your spirits, basically. And it's a very difficult situation for the head coach when they've lost the game. I imagine your credibility as a coach, it's different than when it's just somebody, you know, off the street coming in and talking to them. You've been there like, you know what that's like, and you probably handle it differently because of that. You know, it's not that it's uncomfortable. It's like a sad moment. Again, I don't have as much time now because we're in and out of the game, uh, so I don't get the chance. But earlier, if we were staying over, it's one thing, too. But, 
you're not commiserating, but you are, uh, you know, whether it's a handshake or let him rant or explain what he thought versus like trying to tell them, hey, you should have put Harry in or, you know, that's not what he needs. What'd you waste the time out for? You know, all the stuff that, you know, goes into second guessing. Bill, how do you balance? You've got an incredibly detailed grasp of the game of basketball, but you do a really good job, I find, in your commentary of making it accessible to viewers from a broad range of experience. How do you do that? I think no matter what job any of us are in, uh, it emanates from within. You know, in, in talking to any young people, it's always about, like, just be you. You is pretty good because they hired you. And I, and I think that's basically what you try and do. It's if you're a, a victim or you're triumphant in the way you're raised, the people you pal around with, the type of humor you might have. It, it's all part of who you've been around family-wise, friend-wise, what you've been exposed to. I think it all comes out at some point. And I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, in your business life, it's all about the team you're with and your play-by-play guy. You want him to be comfortable knowing that you're always going to be ready for what he might throw at you. You know, people on the truck do all the heavy lifting, whether it's the stats or making us look good uh, on the outside. Everybody's a vital part of this group and that whatever they do is essential to having a good broadcast and the people at home. By and large, just want to know if their team won or how they played. Uh, but there's so much more to it to make it presentable. Bill, how hard was it for you to pick up other sports? You, you've called golf, for example, and even as an avid golfer yourself, how challenging was that transition? Again, uh, Davy Marr, Ben Wright. I don't know if you know those two names, but they were really great people, knew the golf game, and liked the beverage on occasion. <laughs> and John Brody was the third. Uh, one of my first experiences there, there's a hesitancy because you're not a pro to recognize uh, what's a good shot and a bad shot. Uh, I really leaned on those guys who perform. And I remember John Brody saying to me, don't ever say he can't pull this shot off. So the first broadcast, George Archer ends up winning this tournament and he hits the ball dead left in the woods. He's totally dead. I'm thinking he's going to lose the tournament. Brody told me not to say anything. So I didn't say anything. And doesn't he hit a snap hook, snaps it around, hits the green, cascades left about five feet from the pin, hit, gets a birdie, wins the tournament. So I, I think you've got to know know your game. Or, That's right. Yeah. Well, don't, don't, listeners will know I'm a big fan of self-awareness. And so that's one of those right. moments where you, you just got to know. Yeah. When you're in over your head, admit it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 2014-15 timeframe, you get the nod for the Final Four as the top announcing team with Jim Nance and Grant Hill. Tell our listeners about how that all came together, Bill. I'm just lucky to have been at CBS for a long time. And, uh, you know, Sean McManus had always been nice to me uh, in terms of, you know, my involvement in the uh, tournament and regular season. And, you know, it's just one of those things I, I never coveted it. Uh, I never aspired to it. I never believed in jumping on somebody else's job. Just mind your own business, pay attention to what you're doing. And sometimes things happen, sometimes they don't. But I think a lot of us sort of force the issue or come out of characters maybe to uh, do things you shouldn't be doing. And fortunately, what's interesting with Jim Nance, Jim's first games with CBS, I did with him in 85 or 86. His first studio show, I did with him. 
we had uh, played golf together. We had been friends. You know, obviously his career is just off the charts and rightfully so, you know, with his talent, his delivery, his knowledge, his ability, uh, you know, it's just amazing how he retains things and his memory is just, Grant and I look at one another once in a while, he'll bring some stuff up. You know, he's just off football and here he shows up and like, he knows everything about the teams in the Big Ten, you know, knows everybody in the NCAA tournament, who won where they won. And you'll never find someone saying a bad word about him. You know, he's, he's a no. remarkable guy. Well, and I, I do think you're touching on something interesting there, Bill. You, you can't fake chemistry. You can't fake, you know, relationships. And the three of you, you know, it's very organic and, and it, it's fun to listen to. You guys all like each other and you bounce off each other nicely. I think it's fantastic. Um, Bill, you are legendary for your turns of phrase. Uh, I mean, I've yelled, send it in, Jerome, a truly embarrassing number of times. Last week, I was playing golf. Somebody chipped in off the flag and true story yelled with a kiss. How much of how much of that, Bill, is pre-planned and how much of that is in the moment? Nothing is pre-planned, I assure you. There's not much in there. So I never know, what, I know, I never know what's going to pop out. But I will say this. Years ago, you know, we start the game and I usually go, man, I'm in. And yep. That started as a way of getting out of the play-by-play man's way so he could identify players, position, whatever. And I didn't realize I was saying it as though there was, you know, any break between man-to-man. Man. It was all one word. A couple of times I'm at the airport and I would hear somebody go, man, man. and I'm saying yeah. to myself, what the hell's wrong with that guy? I mean, that's, <laughs> I didn't really know that I was doing it. And, you know, the kiss became something that, Instead of a bank shot, just, you know, a smooch, a kiss, you know, the, the send it in. The, the interesting part, Mike Tirico is probably the only guy that knew this, but I had a buddy of mine who liked to play the horses, and he also liked to bet the NFL games. And one of the NFL games, we're together in a box, and if the game is over, and I knew he lost. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm going to send it in on the next, you know, the next game, the late game, the four o'clock game. And that's sort of like, okay, that, you know, send it in. The, the, and everybody had their own, you know. I love f- it. This is the send it in origin story I've been waiting yeah. for, Bill. That's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, Clark has the flush. Yep. So at any rate, a lot of it is, as I said earlier, part of who you've held around with, what way you phrase things with one another. And, and a lot of it, quite frankly, is to be succinct, not to be in a lot of words and taking the time away from something very important the play-by-play guy may have to do. Yeah, makes sense. Um, all right, Bill, before we move to the last segment of the podcast, I want to do a quick speed round of questions with you. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I just want you to give me your best answer. First thought, best thought. Bill, you ready? I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. What's your favorite place to watch a basketball game? Wow. Well, I played in the Plestra. That was something special. You know, a lot of people jump on, uh, would say Duke right away. The problem with us with Duke is we're up in the ceiling. And it's a million degrees up there. I've been in those cheap seats in Cameron Indoor. But yeah, it's but a million a, a degrees. Lot the, a lot of the old gyms I, I really like, you know. I have a Gallagher out in uh, Oklahoma State. MacArthur Court I used to love up in Oregon. Yep. Uh, Williams Arena. But there's so many good venues now. We do a lot of Big Ten basketball. Those venues are just incredible. Yeah, no, they've, they've gotten really good. What do you think is the most intimidating arena to be a visiting player or coach in? I think Duke. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think, I think Duke. I mean, uh, uh, Michael Corrin, as you know, played at Carolina. He's just one of the 
greatest guys in the world. Mike said they just abused him, you know, whatever it was over. And yeah. he said they were so funny. He said I had to laugh all the time. Yeah. They were so clever, you know. Who's the best player you ever personally played against? Al Butler. Nobody remember Al Butler. Al Butler uh, was a Nick draft pick when there were only eight teams in the league. That's my era. But, uh, you know, he didn't have an Oscar Robertson career, but he was a good player. In the summers, Doug Moe, yep. uh, he wouldn't even remember that or admit it. <laughs> yeah. What's the most memorable sporting event you've ever called? It's got to be the, any Final Four, basically. Yeah. So I did the radio for about 10 years. Yeah. One of the most memorable was the 66 one. I, I didn't work it, but I was there with my high school coach, you know, Texas Western and uh, Kentucky. That, that was quite a uh, remarkable uh, event, as it turned out, years later. Yeah, no, that's right. Who's the best coach in college basketball history, Bill? Wow. Obviously, Wooden's got the hardware. I revered Dean Smith. Yes. I mean, we were go on, we Bill. Became, go on, Bill. <laughs> well, we became great friends. Uh, he was with Frank and recruited me. And then years later, we used to go to Pinehurst with a bunch of guys, uh, like a who's who. And he would, uh, Billy Cunningham, as you know, great player too at Carolina. Billy got me invited and I went for many, many years and spent so much time with him. We had, we had a ball. Bob Knight could probably pick five guys out of a crowd and beat your team. He was really a great teacher and demanding. And of course, we all hear some things about how he was, but he could, you know, and you don't agree with him, except, you know, his style, but boy, he could coach. Yeah, no doubt. Um, well, speaking of- And of course, I, I, I got to say Mike too. Oh no. You know, I thought, I thought I was going to get out of this. All right. Well, Coach K, yeah. hard, hard, well, unfortunately coach, hard to argue. Coach K, hard to argue. Coach K is just a, a great example, uh, you know, for a lot of young people. His adjusting to the times and the rules I agree. has really been extraordinary. No, that's that's very fair. All right. Well, speaking of Pinehurst, Pinehurst, what's your favorite golf course to play, Bill? Wow. Well, Baltusrol is pretty darn good. I heard Down I, here I, I heard the renovation of Baltusrol is unbelievable. I haven't been out yet, but there people are saying great things. Yeah, it is. It's turned out gorgeous. And uh, you know, it's a lot harder for people like me, but it's it's really gorgeous. Um, all right, last question. Um, this is an important one. Which is your favorite daughter, and why is it Christy? <laughs> that one was that one was given to me, Bill. <laughs> no, they asked me. I would say you are because you're with me right now. That's it. That's you know. That's the dad's with, the dad's get out of jail free card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now we were really fortunate. Joni did a great job raising them. A lot of alone for women uh, when we were running around having a ball, basically, but. Uh, they never wanted for anything, whether it's health or academics or, you know, I don't know how she did it. She did it with mirrors, I think. I love it. Um, well, with that, Bill, let's move to the last segment of the podcast, which is something we like to call best ideas, where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. Bill, you're our guest, so I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? Wow. A book I read, Miracles on the Hardwood. And I think it's John Gassaway. Gassaway. He works for ESPN. And what I loved about this particular book was it's about how important basketball was in Catholic schools since the like late 30s all the way up. And there was so many things in there that I remembered vaguely or not at all about the, you know, the Bill Russell era, for example, in the 50s. And I, in fact, I was at a Holy Cross game, Bill Russell versus Tommy Heinsohn. And I told Tommy, God bless him, he's passed away. He had Tommy Heinsohn taking a hook 
from the top of the key because you couldn't get a shot off uh, with Ron Chris. They ended up teammates. And the other thing I've got, Ted Lasso, you know, the soccer. Uh, I've gotten the biggest bang out of that. Uh, we alluded to the soccer background in Carney. Great comedy, uh, you know, a little spicy here and there, yep. but uh, two enjoyable things, the book and that. Those are great recommendations. Miracles on a Hardwood looks fantastic. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to checking that out. You'll be happy to know that Ted Lasso was, in fact, a best idea recommendation for me a year ago. I love it. I think it, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I think it's fantastic. It's got a real warmth to it, but is also incredibly funny, and I just think that's hard to pull off. I think it's great. Well, listen, then let me offer my best idea. As listeners know, I always like to be inspired by the guests of the week. And Bill, as you may have guessed, he's from a great Irish family, is the son of Irish immigrants. And I love the Irish so much that I'm married to a fine woman of Irish descent. And so I wanted to do an Irish best idea this week. My best idea is one of my favorite books I read in the last year. It's a book called Snow by an author named John Banville. Snow is a murder mystery set in County Wexford in the 1950s. It's about a young detective sent to investigate the murder of the local Catholic priest. It's like an Agatha Christie novel, but it's much more mature and complicated in tone. John is a remarkable author, and his ability to place you vividly in scenes is just unmatched. He weaves in these nuanced themes of religion and socioeconomic issues. The house where the priest was murdered is owned by a wealthy Protestant family. And so it's not only a great whodunit kind of read, but it's, it's a more important work than that. So in honor of Bill, a fine Irish guest, my best idea this week is the fantastic novel Snow by John Banville that I highly recommend. That, that's, that's a great wow. book, too. Thank you. But with that, it is time to say goodbye. Bill, I believe this in my heart. You are a national treasure, and it is a real pleasure to have you on. So very appreciated. Well, Colbert, thank you so much. I look forward to having a beverage with you one of these we'll days. We'll have to enjoy a Guinness together soon. Uh, <laughs> all righty. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our guest, Bill Raftery. Check out our show notes to find a link to Bill's best idea, Miracles on the Hardwood, written by John Gasaway. You'll also find a link to my best idea, John Banville's murder mystery novel, Snow. This podcast was brought to you by Adwell Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. 